go ahead and grab a Bible. And we will be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. As you're grabbing your Bible and turning to Luke chapter 12, just want to acknowledge uh, uh, someone. Uh, ben Weber had a big week. Uh, not only did he become a daddy, but he graduated from seminary over in Birmingham. So as you see Ben afterwards, he's here. And so, uh, yeah. Oh, there we go. It's always, always exciting when you get Presbyterians to clap. You, so and that, you made that happen. Um, so, uh, yeah. I also want to say, man, Chris Black, you rock, man. That's worship order. Guys, I'm not sure you know this. Most worship leaders can't do what he did. And it's not the singing or the hymns and the, or the contemporary songs. The worship order this morning, he went from that fact that in the character of God, he is our hope. But then he told the story that in Jesus Christ, that God has revealed his perfect character and has revealed to us our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the pattern of the story this morning. Man, you all have, I hope you can start to see the story that he's writing in the structure of our worship order each and every week. All right, Luke chapter 12, 13 uh, through 14 is where we're going to be, our second strike week in this passage. And we will focus on verses 31 to 34 to give you some context. I'll pick up, though, in 13. Uh, but where we were last week, um, not meaning to talk about money in conjunction with FPU. Uh, it just so happened that, that the calendar hit uh, at the same time, but um, in God's providence, maybe you're getting hit from multiple directions for a reason. Hear God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, that is, he is Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they sow, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And now where we're going to focus this morning, verse 31 and following. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is. 
there your heart will be also. This ends the, the reading of the holy and infallible scripture of God's words. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Our passage um, ends this morning with a fairly famous um, statement there, uh, one of the more famous and often quoted verses in all of Scripture. Verse 34 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This reveals a, a principle that some call the heart principle that is reflected throughout much of the Scriptures, that there is always a sin going on underneath the sin, or there are, there are heart issues, heart desires that are occurring within us that are bubbling up and re revealed in the way we live our lives. And the principle here in regards, to morning, in regards to money this morning is that money is the way you spend your money is the best way to identify the deepest desires of your heart. Money is the best way to desire to, to identify what you really love and whom or what you really serve. Money is the best indicator of who your real God is, who your master is in this world. The implication of this principle is this. What you most value, your money will effortlessly flow to it. You probably won't even have to think about it. What you most value, your money will effortlessly flow to it. Your money flows to that which is your real God. And so here's the diagnostic question for you this morning. You know, a diagnosis question. What is going on under the surface? Where do you spend money most easily? Not necessarily where you spend the most money, but where do you spend the money most easily? That you just find yourself, you're not even sure how you got there, but suddenly you're in line at TJ Maxx, right? That, oh, oh, it just, or Amazon, Amazon Prime is death. It is the greatest thing in the world to have Amazon Prime, but it's also the worst thing in the world for those of us that love books. Going back to last week, we, I asked this diagnostic question last week. What do you worry about the most? That reveals as well your God, who your God is. Last week, we looked at these things that we worry about most and how money is connected to them. We looked at the idol of significance and how we long for acceptance and power and approval. We saw from Matthew 6, 2, it says there, that thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. That you can even give. You can be generous for the purpose of being approved of and accepted. Why do you buy the car that you buy, the house that you have, the clothes that you wear? Why do you spend money the way in which you do? Is it for acceptance? Is it for approval? Perhaps it is for power. Then there's the security idol. We saw this in Luke chapter verses 25 and 26, where, where Jesus asked, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a small thing like that, why are you anxious about the rest? And we looked at how the reason why so many of you are actually hoarding money, in fact, building bigger barns for yourselves, is not because you're being faithful and super wise, as it'll be probably talked about in FBU, but you're actually being someone who is insecure, and you don't find your security in Christ Jesus. You don't trust in his provision for you, and so you're worried about money, and so you hoard it away in ridiculous sums. So to go to back today to today's diagnostic question, where do you spend money most easily. I worked in the bookstore when I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and I had a season where I worked in the bookstore. And so you're living in a world in which uh, uh, those who are the most lauded are the best students. 
those who read the most amount of books, those who had the best library. And you could see guys, seminary students, whose wives were probably working very hard to put them through seminary, and they would come in, and you could see they were jonesing to buy a new book. They were just itching. You could just, they would just saunter around looking. Now, mind you, they have 150 to 200 books on their bookshelf that they've never read, but they need the newest theological book in order, because that was the way of showing that you were a great theologian, that you were a great academic, that you had expertise in this particular area. For us, others of you, it's the clothes you put on, it's the house that you buy. What is it for you? Perhaps it's, perhaps it's your yard. Men, right? We like to have a yard. What does that say about you when you have a good yard? That your world is in order. That I have fulfilled the creation mandate and I have done dominion and dynasty over my lands. Weeds be dead. It shows us that we are in control. What about your, what about, is, is your money simply flow to your children's education? The little gods that are living in your house? The little morons that you're trying to create into the world's greatest Einsteins and you will throw any sort of money to it in order to make them the right sort of idols. Your home, man, your home, it provides you a sense of place, right? A sense of ownership, a sense of belonging. It's really valuable. So your home looks like Pottery Barn, the place where we all belong. That and anthropology. Where do you spend money most easily? They have really comfortable couches, anthropology, and really good smelling candles. And so money could easily flow to that. But what's going on underneath the surface? Last week, we looked at being set free from the love of money that corrupts us, that actually it kills us. As Charlie talked about, that we serve another master beside the good, uh, the good master, and we serve a master that will actually destroy us. You see, we, we had to have the significance. We have to learn, as we talked, looked at last week, that in order to be set free from anxiety and worry about money, we have to come face to face and come to an experience of seeing that Jesus is our security, that his blood shed for us has won for us eternity in heaven so that we are called sons and daughters of God. He is our father and we are his children, and therefore we get an inheritance that won't be taken away. That you are caught up in the hands of the good father who would go to such lengths to make you his that there's no way he would ever let you go. That that's your true security, not the money in the bank account. And the more you take those things to heart, the more you will be, you will be free, set free from worry and anxiety about your money. And so the more you understand those things, the more, as the old pen says, the things of this earth, will, what will happen? They will grow strangely dim. You'll be set free from worry and anxiety. And so that's where we were at last week, the negative. What we need to be set free from. Now the turning point in this text is this word, instead. Instead of worrying and being full of anxiety, now instead we are to seek what? Instead of being stressed out about money, instead of being obsessed about possessions and the approval of men and how much money you have in your bank accounts and all of these things, what are we going to wear, what are we going to drive, what kind of house we're going to own, what kind of education can we buy? Instead, we are to what? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek Christ's kingdom. So last week we looked at the idols that we need to be set free from, and now we need to look to the mission that God has called us to. Now this calling to seek Christ's kingdom first does not happen naturally for us. We are a people who for many of us have lived our, the entirety of our lives living for another kingdom and for another king. And there's completely different investment habits 
there in, in pursuing that, that kingdom. Usually it's our own little kingdoms. And so we must see what, not only what it looks like to invest in the kingdom of God, but we also must be motivated, rightly motivated, by looking at the nature of this king in this kingdom so that we are extracted away from what makes us worry and we are drawn into the thing that we most love and long for. There's an, old, there's an old saying by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. I haven't said this in, in about a year, so I should say it about every six months. But the, the way to change, the way to remove from idols is we need a new affection. He calls it the expulsive power of a new love. That you love, you love your money, you love your security, you love your clothing, you love your anthropology furniture, your anthropology candle, and so you need to be set free from those things, and you need to find something that you love more. The only way to be set free from other desires is to find something that is more desirable. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. That the kingdom has to be seen to us as being more desirable for us to treasure it. And so that's where we're going to go. Here's what you got to see this morning in order to seek the kingdom of God. First, first point is you got to see that the kingdom of God is a better investment. If you're going to seek the kingdom, you have to see, your heart has to come to know that God's kingdom is better than any kingdom, any cause, or any calling that you have in this life. So first, let me just address this, because this term, the kingdom of God, is not talked about by evangelicals very often. It is, it is not opaque to us, or it actually, it is opaque to us. It is unclear to us. And so what is the kingdom? The kingdom is this. The kingdom is where the kingdom of God is where God's rule and reign is fully realized. Where his rule and reign is fully realized. In the fullest and most complete form, the kingdom of God is fully present when everything is exactly as God desires it to be. There's a sense, right, that even before Jesus comes to earth, that the world, that God was the king of the world. That is true. As its creator, he is sovereign over all things. Sovereignty, but we get sovereignty and providence mixed up. Providence is actually what we all probably, what most of you refer to when you're talking about sovereignty. Sovereignty is God's right to rule. It's his right to rule. He is the sovereign God, but we have rejected his sovereign rule. So while he has created the earth, everything is his. He sovereignly rules. Not everything goes as he longs for it to be. But this is different, though. This is different than when Jesus comes and when Jesus returns in, in the end, when all things will be made as Jesus and as God longs for them to be. Where laws will no longer be, will be violated, where people will not rebel against God and his kingship, where the created order will no longer be out of order and out of whack. Since the fall, all humanity and all creation has, has not been as the sovereign king longs for it to be. And so what he is doing in Jesus Christ is he has inaugurated a new kingdom, his kingdom here on earth, and what we see at the end of all things is when he returns, that kingdom will be finally consummated when everything will be the way it ought to be. And this is why it says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore, when God has highly exalted him, him being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, what will happen? So that... At the, the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's when everything, when everyone is bowing and seeking obedience to the Father. And here's what you need to see that is of greater value and worth about this kingdom of God. So that's what it is. Here's why it's worth more. First is this, is that the kingdom of God is better in substance than any of the kingdoms of the world. 
your little, your little one kingdom of one that you live in. Richard Pratt, who is a seminary professor at RTS Orlando, does an unbelievable job at describing this, this dichotomy within the Christian world, how we, we say we were living for the kingdom of God, but how, un, frankly, we're not that different from those who are living for the kingdom of themselves. He says this, he, he says, if you were to ask most non-Christians on their deathbed, about what, what would a good life be like? And if they were on their deathbed and looked back and they would say, this, I lived the good life, here's how they would describe the good life. They would say that I hoped I, I didn't get divorced more than once. I hope my kids didn't get hooked on drugs. I hope that I made enough money to retire early. I, I hope I'm going to die, so I hope I, I die with as little pain as possible. And if I die and I find out that there's a heaven, then I hope I was good enough to get in. Well, if you were to ask evangelical Christians the same question, though, about what the good life is, here's what we would say. Many of us, well, I hope to not get divorced. I hope my kids don't get hooked on drugs. I hope to have a good career. I hope to visit missionaries as I travel around the world. I hope that when I die, my soul is going to take the shape of wings and I'll fly off to heaven. And Peter will welcome me in and hand me a, a big golden harp and give me a seat number for a choir. And then I'm going to sit in that seat and I'm going to play my heart and I'm going to be in that choir forever and ever and ever and ever. This is our view of the kingdom of God. The dream of most Christians of what it will be like to enter the kingdom of heaven is to play a heart and play in a blissful little state, kind of like we're all on a heavenly form of Prozac. <laughs> this is our view of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, though, did not come to this world for that piddly dream. He came for something much greater. Jesus came to this earth to transform this world by establishing his spirit-filled church and that through the spirit-filled church, he establishes and makes his invisible spiritual kingdom visible in this world. That's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And our job is simply to proclaim the gospel. It is a spiritual kingdom that is made physical as God's people live out the values of that kingdom and proclaim the good news of the king. Pratt also talks about hearing about a preacher. You know in Isaiah when it talks about how, the be how beautiful the feet of those who bring good news. What he's talking about there, he's talking about the approaching feet of the, of the watchman. And in the olden times when you would build a city, not all the way up on the top of a mountain, instead you'd build it about 80% up the mountain. And then they would send watchmen to the very top parts of the mountain, and they would look over the city, and they would look at all sides of the mountain and see if there were enemies coming. And so they would sit up there, and if there were an enemy coming, they would come and let the people know. But what he says here in Isaiah, though, is that when this watchman, when this king returns, when this king comes with his kingdom, that this watchman, instead of coming bringing bad news, he comes with good news and says, here comes the king who will reign rightly and reign perfectly over our city. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. And what does this kingdom look like? Here's why its, it's substance is so beautiful. We are given tangible, beautiful pictures throughout the scriptures of what the kingdom of heaven, a.k.a. the kingdom of God, will look like. Let me just run through a few of them. Luke 4, 19, Jesus says this. says, The Spirit has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The oppressed will be set free. 
In Isaiah 55, it says all creation, the world will be made finally as it was meant to be. That in Isaiah 55, it says that they will, it, the trees will clap their hands, the mountains and the hills will sing. In Revelation 21.5, it says this, that when he comes, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the kingdom of God. When God's peace, when the shalom of God reigns rightly, when everything is as he desires it and longs for the world to be. No more tears, no more pain. You ask Miss America, what do you, what do you most long for, Miss America? I long for world peace. Well, Miss America, if you want world peace, invest your life in the kingdom of God. I want to see poverty ended in this world. Well, invest your life in the kingdom of God because when the kingdom of God comes, poverty will be no more. I want to invest my life in the heartbroken, the emotionally downcast. Invest your life in the kingdom of God because when the king comes, there will be no more crying or tears. You want to end cancer? Invest your life in the kingdom of God because he will make all things new. Yes, not just the spirits, not just the soul, but the body as well. There is a kingdom where you and I won't struggle with sin anymore, where we won't disobey, where we won't run from all that is good for us. This is a kingdom where our children are not taken from us too soon. This is a kingdom where our final years are not spent in physical, mental, and emotional agony. This is a kingdom where institutional corruption and oppression is done away with for all time. This is the kingdom we should pursue. So, do you have this sort of vision for your lives? Or is it something smaller? Is it about just, I got to get those clothes. I got to get that job. If we get hold of this vision, it will radically change our view, not just of a few areas of our life. It will change your view of everything because the kingdom of God does not just change the way you do church worship. It changes everything you do in your life. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom. Change how who you marry, how you parent, what house you buy, how you spend your weekend. You see, the mission of God is to make his spiritual heavenly kingdom visible. This is what John Calvin said. John Calvin said this, that the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. So church, is that what we're involved in? The kingdom is better because it's better in substance. It's also better for this reason. It's better because of its assurance. Not only is the kingdom of God better in its substance than any, any kingdom of this world, it is also better in its assurance. Verse 33, what does it say? Seek the kingdom of God. Why? Because in so doing, you provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This is the vision we get in 1 Peter as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. To what? An inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This is the investment. You want really good ROI on your investment of your life? Invest in the kingdom of God. Why? Because it, a downturn in the stock market won't ever take it away. Invest, you invest in your house. It's a great, right? One of the best investments is buy good real estate. Tornado won't destroy this investment. Spiritual stewardship in the kingdom of God is the only lasting and only truly wise investment that you will make in this world. What, what did Jim Elliot say? He is no fool 
who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Investing in the kingdom of God is it's the perfect place, it's the perfect thing to invest in, and it can't be taken from you. And the conclusion here is this then, that we see in, in Matthew 13 that Jesus gives this little parable and it says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. What's the point? What's, what's the moral of the story? That the kingdom of God is worth selling everything to get it. That this is not simply oh, I'm going to make a small little investment in this. No, I will sell everything. The man sold everything. He said, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the fields, the kingdom of heaven. This is how Paul felt, right? In Philippians, he says, I consider everything else as rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, the king. This is the value of the investment. It is worth your life. Not part of it, not a little bit of it, not 10% of it, all of it. That's the first thing you got to see. you got to see that the kingdom of God is a better investment. The second thing you got to see is this. If you're going to rightly pursue seeking the kingdom, you got to see that the kingdom involves a new investment strategy. And here's what it is. It's really, listen, listen. Imagine I'm on, I'm on Fox News Business Channel, whatever it is. I'm the, the guy who looks like Dave Ramsey. I've got the, I've got the goatee. What is his name? He, oh, whatever his name is. I'm really excited. I'm a really, you want to get rich quick? Here's my investment strategy. Sell everything and give it to the poor. That's the investment strategy of the kingdom of heaven. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Commentator Michael Wilcox says this about the kingdom of God that I think makes sense of this. He says, in the life of God's people, there will be seen a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks undesirable. It's called an upside-down kingdom for a reason. The Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't value the the same things as the kingdoms of this world. So if you're going to engage in this kind of investment strategy, you've got to understand it. So understand this, what the kingdom investment strategy involves, what it changes in us. First, it's going to change how you spend your money in your life. It's going to change how you spend your money in your life. You spend your money in your life instead of investing in the kingdoms of this world, instead invest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we looked at this a number of weeks ago when we talked about work in Matthew 25, where it talks about the master and the stewards and how we are seen as stewards in this world. That all the resources that God has given us. We are, stewardship is not holding on to and clinging to the investments, the resources that God has given us, but instead use them to invest in God's kingdom, to send them out to get a return for the glory of God. And when you invest things, you invest things in such a way to make the king, the master, happy. You're investing in the kingdom. Some of you know the name Ernie Johnson. If you're an NBA fan, he, uh, he does the, 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 the analysis crew uh, for TVS with Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal. They just won the Emmy. They've won, they win the Emmy almost every year for this show. Ernie Johnson, he had, he had the life. It was made. He was on the top of his profession, his career. He had two great kids. They had gotten over the baby stage. Their kids were doing healthy and well. They were well off. It was wonderful. But then his life changed. He became a believer 
Jesus found him, and he trusted in him. And so one night, he and his wife were watching 2020, and they were watching a, 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 an account of the horrific um, orphanages in Romania. And his wife turned to him and said, we have, we have to go get a child. And he said, okay, this, this is cool. We've got all the money that we need, absolutely. We can, we can pay to adopt internationally. We can make this happen. And so here's what the plan, he, and this is Ernie Johnson describing this. Here's how he describes We had a great plan. Here was the plan. The plan where we were going to go get a, a beautiful little girl who was between 6 and 12 months old, who was healthy and well, and we would bring her back. All they had was boys, and we're going to bring her back into our family, and we're finally going to have a girl, and we're going to be heroes. But our life won't have to change that much. Well, his wife flew over to Romania. Everything's going to plan, except one day she calls and she says, change of plans. Here's what I think we should do. We should adopt this two-and-a-half-year-old little boy who has perhaps never been out of his, his crib. He is horrifically malnourished, and he is so horribly autistic that most likely they tell us that he will never speak and that he will never have any form of relationship with us whatsoever. Change of plans. What are they going to invest in? His response was a kingdom response. Bring him home. Bring him home. That's what people who are investing in the kingdom, they go and invest in things that God calls worthwhile and that the world says that's pitiable. Bob and Sharon Drews, their mission to the world missionaries with our denomination, they, they retired and they did, they did the thing that you're supposed to do in retirement. They were incredible. They went to Japan and were missionaries for three years, the first three years out of retirement. But they were coming to the end of their, their three-year term, and they had six grandchildren, and they were missing them like crazy, and they were ready to get back to care for their family in the States. Well, a couple of weeks right before they were about to end their term and leave, Bob went out with one of the other teammates on the missions team, and they went and sat in a park, and they watched Japanese families go past them, child after child after child, and eventually, after about 30 minutes of sitting there in silence with his teammate, he turned to his teammate and said, we can't leave, can we? Uh-oh. He went home and he told his wife, Sharon, we can't go back to the United States. God's calling us to stay here. And she said, I don't think God's calling us to stay here. But if, if you heard from the Lord, why don't you take me to the bench where you sat and let's see if I hear the same thing from him. So they went back to that same park and she sat and watched the little Japanese children Family after family walked past them. It took her about five minutes. She turned and said, we have to stay here. She said to her husband, our six grandchildren, as much as we love them, we miss them. They have a wonderful church community, and they have Christian parents, and they have a Christian school that they can go through to, and these kids have none of those things. And so they stayed. That's investing your life in the kingdom of God. What has, given you, what has God given you in this world that you can, you can invest for kingdom work? Some of you are unbelievable social networkers. You are, you are social elites. Let's, let's be honest. Some of us have more social skills than others of us. True, this is part of the economy of this world. That people just love hanging out with you. Let me ask you this. Is you're moving up the social ladder, is it, oh man, I can get to the next one and I can hang out with those people? Or is I'm going to use my social standing to serve the lowly? When you do hospitality, oh, you have a, God has given you a beautiful home. It looks like Pottery Barn, and that's great. It is a beautiful place of rest. But listen, hospitality, brothers and sisters, is not just having your good friends over. Hospitality is having those who make your house not smell like Pottery Barn. 
Hospitality is having little children, lots of them in your home that's going to scuff up your furniture and do things to your walls and make your house smell like something you're not quite sure, but you think it's connected to an animal. <laughs> Some of you, God has given you money. You need to give it away because it's going to rot your soul. And you give it away and invest it for really good things. What's God given you? Some of you, God has given you poverty and physical brokenness. God has given you a story that has so many holes in your life. And you are, are spending your whole life trying to cover up those holes. What would it be like if you became secure enough in Christ Jesus that you could share the brokenness of your story and engage with other people? What would that be like? Your story of abuse. God's given that to you. I, I, that's, that's not a resource we normally think about, but it is a resource. Your story is the greatest resource. It's the story of God's redemptive work in your heart. So, the kingdom investment strategy changes our lives and how we spend. It also changes how you'll give. Changes how you give. If I'm a steward, this is one of the first questions we ask, right? Okay, I'm going to give away my money. Absolutely, I'll do it. You got me. How much do I got to give? Well, you know the standard, right? The Old Testament standard was 10%. It's called the tithe, the tenth. The tithe, and that is the basic guideline. Let me, let me read to you a passage, because I'm going to glean a few things from this. From Luke chapter 11, verses 39 through 42. It may be on the screen, I'm not, I don't know. And Lord said to him, he's talking to the Pharisees, Now you Pharisees, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And Jesus said, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect the justice and love of God. Here's the big point. Here's the kicker. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. A couple things to point out here. First is this. Jesus upholds the guideline of the tithe. He says, do not neglect the tithing. Do not neglect it, but also seek to end systemic injustice and oppression. You cannot simply give to charities your 10%. No, but you must also work to end to have children slaughtered in this, in this country. End systemic just, injustice and oppression. Well, you do both. That's what Jesus calls them to. And the heart of it, actually, the main principle here is Jesus is saying, I want more than simply your tenth. I want your heart also. I want the outside. Oh, yes, the external obedience matters. But more importantly, I want your insides as well. I want your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He wants it all. So if you ask Jesus, how much should I give? Jesus says to me, says, give a tithe. But if you only give a tithe, that doesn't please me. I want all of you. The basis is 10%. You know, brothers and sisters, that's the, the basis in the, in the Old Testament. But here, here's, the th here's the point, though. How much more in light of the gospel should we be called to give? Can you imagine the, the, in, the New, in the New Testament that you would invest less than Old Testament believers? That we who have come to know the grace of Jesus Christ, that the mystery, as Paul talks about, that, that for generations, Old Testament Israel longed to see the mystery has been revealed to us. How much more should we invest? You see, there is, here's what changes in your giving is that you no longer just give to mark it off the list, 
but you give in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you do that, you give. You don't just give the 10%, you give sacrificially. In other words, you give until it hurts. You give till it hurts. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, I think Paul talks about this, about giving sacrificially. He goes, he's talking about poor, a poor, poor church in Macedonia. And he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is one of the, a very wealthy church. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. There's, here's what happened to their extreme poverty. It overflowed into giving. It overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave not according to their means, as I can testify, but beyond their means and of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The key here is, is does Paul say, say how much they sacrificed? But he said, the Macedonians, look how great they are. They tithed. No, he says... They gave simply just sacrificially, no particular percentage or number give them, given. They gave until it hurt. They gave it till it hurt. Jonathan Edwards is one of the sermons where he preached in Galatians 1, where it talks there about bearing the burdens of brothers and sisters in Christ. And some of the members of his congregation objected, and they said, we can't afford to bear the burdens of other people in our church. We don't have the money to give. And here's what his reply was. He said, if we are never going to give unless we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do we actually bear others' burdens when we bear no burden at all? In other words, if you're going to bear burdens, you're going to feel it. It's going to feel like a burden. It won't feel like, well, I've got this thing to the side. I don't know really what to do with it so they can have it. This is like my kids, right? Okay, kids, it's time for you to give a toy Okay, what's the toy I hate the most that I never use anymore? And for us as parents, we're like, good, we can get rid of the clutter in our house. We're teaching our kids to give out of our discretion, not out of what it actually burden us. When we normally mean, we, when we say, I can't give, afford to give, what we mean by that is we, we can't be burdened to give. Paul goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9. I say this, understand this is not legalism, this is gospel we're called to sacrifice. I say this, not as a command, he says, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the kicker, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's the root of giving, of sacrificial giving? It's understanding Jesus' sacrificial work on your behalf. Let me ask you this. Did God tithe his son? Jesus went to the cross and they amputated his right arm. That's quite the sacrifice. That's not what he did, was it? He gave up his life. He gave abundantly. He gave it all. He didn't just give. He gave sacrificially. Third thing you got to understand about the investment strategy and how it changes. The kingdom investment strategy changes how you relate to money entirely. It changes the relationship with money. Giving is now a means of being set free. Did you know this? We talked about this last week. That if you're worried about money, worried about money, it's causing you anxiety in your life. You know what the best way to be free of that worry? To give it away. If it's causing you so much trouble, give it away. 
Our motivation for giving it should be to liberate our hearts from idols. There's no better way to be free from the power of money than to give it away. But here's what I want you to see. For the first time, when you start giving money away, is for the first time it doesn't own you. You actually finally own it. When you start giving money away, you find that you prove for the first time that money doesn't own you. You own it. And we want to give. Our motivation is grace, and grace makes for a cheerful giver. The way you know you're a sinner saved by grace and that you believe the gospel is you start to give it away. Your money, your relationship with money changes. And instead now, instead you see money not as the means of fulfilling yourself or giving you security, but you see money as what it is in God's economy and God's kingdom, which is investment funds. It is investment currency for grace. That's what it is. You look at the $100 bill you have in your wallet. This is this is the currency of grace right here. I can use this for grace. Money, if you give it away generously, models God's grace and is used by the Spirit of God to help others experience God's grace. Let me, one more time to 2 Corinthians, this time chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. Paul says this, if you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. By the way, he pleads for selfishness. You'll be enriched if you give it away. And then he moves on, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So you worship God. That's good. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity, generosity of your contribution for them and for all other, others. Did you hear this? That by their approval of this service, the world will see you giving your life away and they'll worship God. It's the currency of grace. Christian, Christians gener- who are generous help others believe that God has been incredibly generous to us. It's a, way, it's a means of incarnating the gospel to a world that says, you got to hoard it, you got to use it for yourself, but no, we should lay it down as Jesus laid down his life. And when people see you radically, or radically generous, the world will be amazed by that. They'll be amazed by that. Third and finally, and where we conclude this morning, third point is, you got to see that the kingdom is a better investment. you got to see that it has a new investment strategy. And then third, you got to see that the kingdom has a joyous king. If you were to invest your entire life savings in a company, you would go and you want to meet those running the company. You know, I, I heard a couple weeks ago about a couple that they invested their entire retirement, their, all their retirement in a, a river cruise trip in Europe. $24,000. If you watch Downton Abbey, you know those river cruise things? Don't we all want to go on that? The Viking river cruises? You feel sophisticated just watching the commercial and just going, I want to do that. I must be a sophisticated person that I want to do that. Well, that's what they went on. They spent $24,000 going on a river cruise. But unfortunately, most of the rivers in Europe at the time were flooded. And so they couldn't actually go on the rivers. And so they ended up seeing Europe from a bus. They sued the company. They sued the company. Wouldn't you want to make, know what's going to happen? Wouldn't you want to know those who are running the company, what's going to happen when you're going to make such an investment? You know the, the, the show Shark Tank? I like Shark Tank. They put like three or four entrepreneurs there, and then they have small business owners come in and make their pitch. And it's cool. Sometimes there will be times where people are, I mean, they come with incredible products, and they've got a great business plan, but sometimes the entrepreneurs will say, you've got a great product, a great business plan, but you are not sold out for this, for this company. I'm not going into business with you. You've got to know who you're going into business with. If you're going to invest in the kingdom of God, then you must come to know the heart of the king. 
If you have a kingdom, guess what? There's a king. And in kingdoms, it's a monarchy. It's, he rules everything. Verse 32, look at this at the heart of this king. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to what? To give. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God gives. God is going to give it to you. You know why this is a sure investment? Because he's going to give it to you. This is, how, it's, this is the circularity of, the, of biblical wisdom. It says, make, make Jesus the greatest desire of your heart, and God will give you the desires of your heart. And somebody, some people say, well, if you just put God first, then everything else, you'll be wealthy, and everything else will be great. No, that's not the point. It's saying if Jesus is your greatest desire, you're going to get Jesus. And when the kingdom of God is your greatest desire, guess what? It's being promised to you because God gives it. Seeking the kingdom of God is a sure thing because it's the Father's pleasure to give it to you. That's wonder. What's one thing? He's, he's a giving God. But second, see, did you see that, that how it describes the way he gives? God gives joyfully. It says the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you, do you, do you sense the pleasure of the king? I just read it from 2 Corinthians 9, 3, 11 through 13. Just three or four verses later, earlier, it says this in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, guess that, brothers and sisters. I want you to see that this king and this God is a cheerful giver. It is his pleasure to give you his kingdom to give you this world. God gives out of his pleasure, out of his heart, and longing for you. We go back to the place I was at last week. I gave it away. It wasn't in my notes last week, but I gave it away. But I'm going to give it to you again. Matthew 13, verse 44. The parable of this. I'll read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The moral of the story is certainly that the kingdom of God is worth us selling everything in order to get that kingdom. But that's actually not the point of the story. You notice here, it, it, the, the, that is not the point of the parable. Notice that it says the kingdom of heaven is like. It doesn't say good Christians are like. This is the kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about you here. It's talking about the kingdom of heaven, what the nature, of the, and it's talking about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And if you see this, the wonder and beauty of this kingdom, then you'll see that it's worthwhile. Do you see it? Jesus in this parable is showing that the kingdom is worthy of us giving up our all by showing us the nature of this kingdom is that there is a wealthy man who gave up his wealth to go buy a treasure. Who was that wealthy man? Who is that wealthy man? And who is the treasure? For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, um, uh, 
I really don't know how to pray. I'm sorry. Um, God, I pray that you'd forgive me for my... Um, the heart in me that just wants to hoard. Um, that is satisfied with, with the saying, oh, I tithe. <laughs> I'm so great. God, I, I pray that for us, Lord, I, I pray that those in this room who give really a lot of money to charities, to the needy, to their church, for many of us, Lord, we need to repent this morning. We need to repent because we've given in such a way that was trying to make ourselves right before you. that we thought the way into the kingdom was to give a lot of money. God, I pray that you change our hearts and that you would make us a people who actually give in such a way out of the heart, in abundance, not out of duty, not being compelled by a sense of, well, I've got this, I gotta, I gotta, I'm supposed to obey. But Lord, be out of a sense of your incredible wealth towards us, your richness of love towards us. Confront us with your love in the way you've given to us. Lord, do a great work that, Lord, the King's Chapel would be known as a church that um, is abundantly wealthy with the grace of Jesus Christ, that we would be liberal with what you've given us for the good of other people. Lord, that we would be a church that's known for taking in more orphans than we can handle. That we would take care of the widow. That, Lord, we would be a people who long to see oppression and justice end. And that we would give our life to these kingdom efforts. So do a hard work in us, Lord. By your grace and by your spirit, we ask in the name of your perfect son, Jesus. Amen.